Bread. It's something most of us eat nearly every day, even if it's gluten-free. It's been a staple in the diets of millions of people around the world for centuries, and it's in the Bible, surprisingly a lot. In our interview today, I'm talking with author and speaker Abigail Dodds about what something as simple as the mixture of flour, water, and yeast can teach us about God, about the Bible, and about what it really means to be satisfied by our Savior. Abigail's new book is called Bread of Life, Savoring the All-Satisfying Goodness of Jesus Through the Art of Breadmaking, from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Abigail, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway podcast. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the art of bread making and the Bible and how all of that relates to Jesus in a really, really interesting, profound way. Uh, But before we jump in, I wonder if we could start by you helping me to understand something that's happened kind of in our culture uh, over the last, you know, 12 months or so. So it seems like during the pandemic, I read that there's been a big surge and in interest in sourdough starters. And so I wonder for, for us non-bakers out there, could you first explain what is a sourdough starter? And then why do you think that's been so popular over the last year or so? Yeah, sourdough starter is just flour and water. That's it. In a little jar or a little container, just a little bit. Like usually you could start with something like 50 grams or which might be like a half a cup of flour and water. Usually it's equal parts, um, depending on the kind of starter you want. But basically that flour and water just develops yeast in it over a few days. So over the course of about a week, it'll start Mm. to get bubbly and what they say active. Um, And then that yeast, that flour and water, becomes the leaven for bread. So you would put that then in your dough that you're mixing up to make bread. And that's the thing that makes the dough rise. That concoction isn't the bread itself. You're actually putting that into a bread that you're actually making in another step. Right. So if you were to make bread without sourdough starter, if you were to make bread with what's called commercial yeast, like the yeast that you buy in the store, it would look like little pellets. Mm-hmm. and you would put a teaspoon or something like that in the flour and water that you're mixing up for bread that you're making with commercial yeast. So the thing that you're doing differently in sourdough is instead of adding that teaspoon of commercial yeast, you're adding an amount of this leaven that actually looks like dough to your dough. So mm. it's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So why do you think it was so popular during the pandemic? Well, I think people were stuck at home and you're kind of like, what should I do? Well, maybe I'll try and bake something. Everybody wants comfort food. And you're seeing pictures online because everybody's online of beautiful loaves of bread because what you need to know is the sourdough craze started over 10 years ago. So Mm. it's been happening for a long time. Um, And the artisan bread making craze, the COVID restrictions and everyone being at home just amped it up and made it even more widespread. But there has been a very thriving culture of of sourdough and bread making that's been happening for for probably longer than 10 years. Um, hmm. 10 years is probably more when I started to notice it. Um, but it really burst on the scene with Pinterest and Instagram and beautiful pictures of 
bread. <laughs> that that maybe fits then with that kind of that younger crowd. I I saw some quote online. Someone I think it was a tweet. Someone said sourdough starter is a tamagotchi for people in their thirties. I think uh, <laughs> the idea being you have to sort of cultivate it you have to kind of keep working on it to keep it going is, is that right that's right you have to feed it every day so every day if you have it out on your counter so this is where it gets probably boring for some people but yes so if it's a starter on your <laughs> counter you feed it every day or if it's in your fridge maybe you feed it once a week but yes it's it's a little like having a pet <laughs> that's so interesting so, so you said that you you kind of got into bread making about 10 years ago or so uh, what was it that, that got you into that? As I read in your book, you, you initially were maybe a little bit skeptical about uh, about that whole thing. Right. So um, I was married at 21 and we had our first child at 22. And that's back 17 plus years ago. <laughs> and mm. so and then we had several children quickly. So I was the mom of a lot of little kids and I was on, in survival mode a lot of the time, just kind of didn't really know what I was doing, thankfully had family around, so had had some help, but was very much just getting by, trying to make sure everyone had some food on their plate every day. And, <laughs> um, and it, it developed, I think that kind of survival mode enabled me or kind of pushed me a little bit towards the scoffing mindset of hmm. why would someone who's trying to take care of a lot of kids or who's a mom like me how could they have time for that kind of a thing? Like, how could yeah. they possibly do that? Don't they know you can buy bread at the grocery store? You know, that those were the thoughts that would go through my head because I just felt kind of maxed out. And um, and you were seeing you were seeing other moms, other young moms doing a lot of bread making. And that was kind of what your response was. Yeah, exactly. I was seeing moms that weren't that different from me. You know, they some of some of them were older and at a little bit of an older stage than I was. But they were doing more, I guess, than what I was doing. And so it, it became mm. scoffing became a defense mechanism against not measuring up, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you talk in your book about how that scoffing and cynicism related to bread making kind of, I think it kind of paralleled perhaps a similar response when it came to you know, your time in God's word and, you know, doing devotions that unpack that a little bit for us. What, what parallels did you see there? Right. Because just like, you know, th these women who I'm looking at, I, I simultaneously, excuse me, simultaneously are admiring them. And also, um, having that proximity where all your weaknesses or the things that maybe you're not good at kind of shine forth. Um, and so rather than seeing them as an inspiration, it's more like mm. seeing them as a threat or yeah. um, it's just a really weird thing that our sin nature does when we get around people who are doing things differently than we are, or maybe they are just more capable, but we don't want to admit that. Um, yeah. And so as I was then getting in Bible study or trying to read God's word, and I had been a real consistent lover and avid reader of God's word. I mean, all through my teen years in college, just felt like I could never get enough. And so then mm. as a young mom, I was very discombobulated with my schedule because it wasn't really mine anymore. I was, my life was revolving around nap times and the nap times were always changing. And then another child would get thrown into the mix and then, and I was just so tired. And so 
all these things that were new to my life really threw me out of whack in terms of my Bible reading and my appetite mm. for Bible reading was going down at that same time. Yeah. Um, and so it was a confluence of those things. And then hearing from people in my life, um, really godly people, kind of different messages. And one was the message of, well, you're a young mom and you have a lot on your plate. So don't be legalistic about it. And it'll be fine. This is just a season and don't worry about it. And then mm. the other message was, this is God's word. Like, who do you think you are to just skip it? You can do this. <laughs> like, if you can eat lunch, you can read your Bible. And yeah. so it was those two messages. And I, instead of receiving those as both having some validity and kind of walking forward imperfectly, I sort of took to just scoffing. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll sign up for a Bible study, but... You know, I'm going to give the sidelong glance at the woman who is either not doing her homework because I'm at least getting some done or mm. the sidelong glance at the woman who's coming with all the highlighters and who has done extra work <laughs> on her homework. And I'm going to look at that like, oh, so I guess you have a lot of spare time on your hands. You know, yeah, I was just I think that's what happens when you become a scoffer. Nothing is off limits. You just mm. create this ability to be above everything. And yeah. it's, oh, it's deadly. So, so deadly. So that was happening in my spiritual life while also in my physical life of like doing good works, it was happening as well. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that you found that scoffing was in some way like a defense mechanism. Um, unpack that a little bit more. I think that that resonates with all of us. But why do you think it is that... Um, that can be our response when we feel threatened. Well, because we don't want to own that we, um, well, that we're sinners, that there are things that we could actually be doing differently to, to do better, or simply we don't want to own that there are limits that we have that God may not have given to other people. And mm. so there's just a reality of humanity that some people will be better at things than me. Some people will have more capability than me to get X amount of things done in a 24-hour day. And so on the one hand, you have to be humble with who God's made you to be and rejoice that he's made someone else to do more than you. But then you can't take that as an excuse either to be like, well, I'll just sit back on my haunches and do nothing because I'm not as I don't have all the capabilities they do. You have to take what he's given you and still max it out, you know to the glory of God, by his strength, with his grace, not in a earning salvation kind of a way, but I just mean in, a, in the kind of way that says, I'm not gonna squander the talents, even though they're only one and that person got 10. Um, mm. So that's, I think, where the defense mechanism comes in is, is we would like to be other than what God's made us to be. And it is kind of, a in my case, it's been a lack of humility. Hmm, yeah, yeah. So as you've kind of moved along the road of bread making and, and kind of gotten more uh, more knowledge and more abilities and experimented with things and kind of learned the process uh, for the last decade or so, have you noticed any other parallels with uh, your your efforts to get to know God and his word and be, you know, a, a more and more skillful reader of the Bible? Are there other other things that sort of parallel the process of learning bread making? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that's so wonderful 
and amazing about the world God has made is that he's woven meaning into all of it. And so as I'm reading God's word and as that scoffing is melting away under the influence of God's word and the goodness of it and just my desperation for it, um, you begin to see that the stories of scripture, the lessons that Jesus is teaching, so many of them are related to the physical world. And so bread is this amazing like flannel graph of the Christian life, <laughs> of who Jesus is. And then you start to see it everywhere and you just become yeah. awake to God's world. You know, the parable of the vineyard, um, all the different things that the Lord talks about relate somehow to the physicality of this world, the lost hmm. sheep. And you start to see the meaning and, um, and bread is such a rich one to focus yeah. on and to spend your energy on because that's who Jesus says he is. And so, yeah, so much to explore there. Is there something about our, you know, maybe our American modern evangelical context that, that has often led us to neglect the physicality of God's word and, and the importance of that stuff. You know, you, you kind of noted that that was maybe something that you learned or was a surprising reality to you. Um, why is that? Why was that surprising? Well, so one of my very favorite Bible passages is Colossians 3, 1 to 4. And um, it says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ mm. is. Don't seek the things of the earth. Set your mind on the things above. And so wonderful passage, still one of my favorite passages. But one of the ways I misapplied that passage was to think that earthly things were earthy things. I, could mm. you hear the difference of the word I used? I thought that earthly things were earthy things. And that's not, yeah. those aren't exactly the same thing. Because if you keep reading past verse four, which was always my favorite part that I would memorize and then I'd be done. <laughs> um, <laughs> it says, it defines what earthly things are. And it's things like sexual immorality. It lists a whole bunch of sins. Those are the earthly things that we are not to be fixing our minds on. We're not to be participating in. But earthy things like God made the world and mm. the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Those things are actually pointers to God. It's like Lewis says, they're, they're sunbeams that point us in the direction of God. If we can trace along them all the way up and back to the sun, we, we see more of who God is. Now where that can go astray is that if you do not know God's word, if you do not know the way he chooses to use the earth as metaphor for himself, like things of yeah. the earth, like bread, as metaphor him for himself, you'll miss it. You'll, you'll go really weird. <laughs> um, and, and people do. So knowing what, What's God, an example of that? What do you mean by that? Well, for instance, there are a lot of real nature lovers people who absolutely love nature, who value the earth or the environment, but who cannot find God in it. They cannot find the true and living God through merely accessing the world because mm. they cannot understand the meaning without both the revelation of the world and the word. 
you've got to have the revelation of Jesus Christ through the scriptures, the written word, in order to rightly understand all the metaphors in the world, like uh, bread yeah. and a vineyard. Um, and so that's where knowledge of God's word is absolutely essential if you want to start poking your head around in the metaphors of the world that are going to point you to Christ. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's take some time then to walk through a few of those, uh, I guess what we would call earthy metaphors that are unpacked for us in God's Word. Uh, And you you kind of hit on some of these in your book, and I just picked out a few. And the the first one, the one that kind of stands at the very beginning of the the story of of all of us, uh, is going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And uh, as God is talking to Adam and actually cursing him because of his sin, he, he mentions bread, and that's the first mention of bread in the Bible. Uh, explain a little bit what happens there and, and why it's significant. Right, well, I just think it's fascinating, first of all, to note that that is the first mention of bread, that up to that point in the story, what we have is a garden full of fruit or food of some sort. So we have a garden full of food that's, that's growing apparently on trees, we haven't seen really specifically what Adam has cultivated up to this point, what Adam and Eve have perhaps cultivated. Um, we, we don't know. You know, we just don't know. Mm. Like, I wonder if they were chopping up their apples and making apple pie yet. <laughs> you know, we just know that the food is coming to them off the tree ready to eat, it seems. So it seems. But bread is clearly a cultivated food. Bread is something that you have to make. It doesn't come to you on a tree. It doesn't come Mm. to you growing out of the ground. You have to take the grains of wheat. You have to grind them up. You have to mix them with water. And there has to be, you know, leaven to make it rise. There are multiple processes involved to get your way to bread. And so I just find that interesting that it's the cultivating in a way that's cursed. When God says your bread will come by the sweat of your brow. Hmm. That cultivating process is going to be very difficult. Um, Yeah. So that I just find interesting in and of itself. And I also find it interesting that when we see what happens when sin enters the world with Eve, so the serpent comes to Eve and he, you know, twists God's words. He repeats back to her what the, what the command was, don't eat from any, did God really say don't eat from any tree? Where she hadn't said to him, God said don't eat from any tree. She had said to him, God said don't eat from this tree. So he does already does a subtle exaggeration to make God look like a miser who won't provide Mm. for her. Don't eat from anything. Um, And so she is listening to the voice of the serpent buying into what he's saying and ultimately she's rejecting the provision of god in favor of becoming a self provider Hmm. she what's what's really ironic is she thieves from her own garden Hmm. so she she thieves she she steals something that god has said you can't take that and it's the garden that is belonging to her and so in one sense Everything in the garden is put there for them. And yet one is prohibited, just like as a parent, we all understand 
there are things in the house that our children live in. It's their house, but there are some things off limits for them. Maybe for a time and a season, maybe for forever. We don't know whether God was ever going to give her that tree eventually, the fruit there. Mm. But she doesn't believe that God's a good provider. <clears throat> and so she provides for herself and for Adam. And, um, and then it's the provision of bread that's cursed. And so there's something to that, I think, this hmm. mistrust of a provider, mistrust of the one who is giving us good gifts. We don't think that they're good. And Eve thought that he was not good in not giving her that one thing. Um, hmm. And so mistrust of a provider, I think, is just a theme in the scripture that we need to examine and then look at in our own heart. Am I mistrusting the provider? Yeah. Well, and that relates to kind of the next instance of bread that I was hoping to kind of look at. Zooming ahead in the biblical story, we get to Israel coming out of slavery in Egypt, and then God, again, provides a certain kind of bread for them, bread from heaven uh, in the wilderness that, that the Israelites don't love very much. So unpack unpack manna for us. Yes, this is... a. It is a repeat in one sense of what happened with Eve. It's the story happening again and again. So they get brought into the wilderness, which we think of wilderness as this is a bad place. But often in scripture, wilderness is a place God brings you for safety. Um, It isn't always simply a place where there's no food, (laughs) Um, although they weren't eating food. So that was happening. Um, But God brings them to a place where he is going to provide for them. And rather than trust that or even receive the provision he gives, which is miraculous bread raining down from heaven, <laughs> um, just really quite something, they decide they're sick of it and a rabble, kind of a group, starts to form a, a small mob. And this small mob influences enough people that they are demanding from God that meat come to them. We are Mm. sick and tired of this manna. We wish we were back in slavery in Egypt, and we wish we had the meat and the vegetables and the leeks that we had there because it was so much better. And this is the condition of the human heart. I mean, I really think what we are supposed to see in these stories that are true is that this is our condition. We are Mm. longing to go back to slavery when we cannot see that God's provision is good and for us and ultimately his, his kindness is in it. So again, God doesn't say to them, he doesn't prevent them from getting what they beg for. And I think this is again, such a key point, just like he didn't stop Eve from taking the fruit, the Israelites demand meat and he goes along with it. He says, you can have meat, you can have meat until it's coming out of your noses. And that's what Mm. happened. They had validation of their desires coming out of their noses. He, they had been through a traumatic experience. And I think if we were to kind of frame this up in a modern way, we would be very sympathetic to them. We'd be like, they just went through so much hardship. They must've been reeling. I'm sure they were psychologically really struggling And yet, God holds them accountable for their sin. And he judges them in that moment by giving them what they want. The judgment was giving them what they want. 
And again, what a lesson for us that we can ask for things and sometimes the reception of those things is a judgment on us. Um, mm. God may give us what we want and it may not be at all. It may not turn out at all the way we thought. Um, yeah. That can be a judgment too. And so that's what happens to them. And he graciously continues to walk with them even after that. But um, yeah. the irony yeah. of manna in the New Testament is that... <laughs> They beg for that same thing, like, oh, if only we had manna coming out from heaven, you know. <laughs> and so even how we rewrite history to think, yeah. oh, if only we had manna coming from heaven now, we would surely believe, Jesus, that you yeah, were we God's trust. son, you know. Hmm. Well, let's, let's jump ahead to the New Testament then. Uh, another example of uh, not bread itself, but I suppose a a bread-related idea is the idea of leaven, and you've already mentioned leaven. It's, it's not maybe a term that's used uh, as often today, at least not when you're if you're not in the bread-making community. But um, Jesus often spoke of leaven, usually in a pretty negative sense uh, in the Gospels. So, what what did he mean by that, and why was the idea of leaven such a helpful concept for him to use? Yeah, leaven is mainly spoken of, like you said, very negatively. And it refers most often to the sin of hypocrisy. Um, leaven is something that he says is working through um, the scribes and the Pharisees through their hypocrisy. And the thing about leaven is, I think I, I mentioned this at the beginning, it looks just like the dough. Hmm. So leaven looks the same as dough, but it's doing something. It's got this yeast in it that that works all the way through the dough, which is why the dough then rises. And so when you think about leaven, if you think about leaven as a negative bad thing, it means that there's something that looks the same as the, the good thing, but it's working its way through, all the way through. Yeah. And so leaven is something that's hidden. Leaven is hidden in a lump of dough. That's one of the main qualities of leaven. You cannot see it. It works through and you can't see it until you can. And by then, it's already worked all the way through. And so what mm. it means by until you can is that at some point, that's going to do something to the whole lump of dough. It's going to rise. It's going to be completely saturated with that leaven. It will have worked its way through. So hypocrisy, you can understand why Jesus would use that as a metaphor for hypocrisy because hypocrisy is hidden. That's the whole point of hypocrisy. You're putting a front up that looks one way when really you're something else on the inside. You've got the outside all washed and inside full of dead bones. So that's what the Pharisees were doing and that's why Jesus says this is the kind of leaven that the Pharisees are working through. It is a pretending, a fake, a false um, idea of what holiness is holiness is and he warns over and over against it because it takes spiritual discernment to see hypocrisy mm. you can't see it mm. with the eyes on your face yeah so, so that's the hidden nature of the leaven is there also the element though uh, like with real leaven that it, it sort of can infect the whole loaf it can kind of expand in secret and ruin everything is that what he's also getting at Yep, and that, that is exactly the warning that Jesus is giving, which is um, if you tolerate this kind of hypocrisy, it will spoil everything it touches. It is mm. 
um, a powerfully active agent that does not stay put. It's spreading. It's a spreading agent. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Another, uh, another really interesting connection to bread in the new Testament that I wasn't aware of, uh, until I encountered it, uh, and what you wrote was that even the word Bethlehem has a connection to bread. Bethlehem being this really obviously important, uh, town throughout the whole Bible, old and new testaments. Uh, but then obviously the birthplace of Jesus, what's that connection there? Mm-hmm. Well, Bethlehem means house of bread. And it, I think it really helps to start probably with Ruth, the story of Ruth. Mm. And if you remember Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, who's an Israelite, she and her husband and their family leave Bethlehem because it had become a place of famine. There mm. was no bread in the house of bread. The house of mm. bread was empty. <laughs> so they leave Bethlehem. And they go to um, a not an Israelite country for nourishment and sustenance. And her sons marry non-Israelite women, women, Moabites. And in the loss of her husband and her sons, then she gains these two daughters-in-law. And Ruth, the one, decides to come back with her to Bethlehem once the famine is over. And so they head back to the house of bread to Bethlehem. And they are provided for, of course, by... Boaz and Ruth is allowed to glean in his field. And it's this incredible story of Ruth, this um, Moabite who is like the archetypal godly woman in the book of Ruth. Like, and she's not an Israelite, but she's the, Mm. she is her own like Proverbs 31 archetype laid out for all of us to see and admire. So here she is in the house of bread being provided for by Boaz and being brought into the family And then, lo and behold, she is in the lineage of Jesus. It's from Mm. that same house of bread that Jesus would be born through that line of Ruth and Boaz. And so it really is beautiful foreshadowing, just the most incredible foreshadowing of Jesus coming from the house of bread as the bread of life. Yeah. Yeah. So let's jump into Jesus then. Uh, We've all heard that, the bread of life, and and maybe we... uh, we have, you know, some connections there. We can kind of suspect maybe it connects to the idea of the Lord's table and Jesus saying, my body is bread, eat this. But help us understand, why why would Jesus pick that metaphor, bread, to be one of the primary ways that he kind of identifies himself? Well, one thing that's interesting is that every culture kind of has a bread. Um, bread is a staple even even in cultures where like there isn't bread the same way we might have it here in the states there's almost always kind of single grain or simple grain um food that's a real staple a real primary sustenance and so i do think there's a universality to bread across cultures that makes it something very understandable for all of us like we just know that we all eat these kind of simple grain foods and we can't eat meat all the time and cheat like they're they're just it's one of those things that's (laughs) daily normal everyday nourishment there's something very daily and repetitive about eating bread or rice or naan or whatever the the bread formulation is 
Um, and so that I think is, is really important to, to see mm -hmm. that this is cross-cultural, this applies everywhere. Um, and then just understanding that nourishment aspect that he is the provision of our lives. Like if you want to be alive, you have to eat the bread. You cannot live without the bread. And so mm. that metaphor for Jesus being our life means that without daily sustenance from Jesus, we can't live. And then, and, and then when you go through and think that, yeah, Jesus is our creator. We're told, you know, he was there at the beginning. All things were made through him and for him. And this creator, Jesus, who sustained us, gave us provision in creation, is continuing to sustain us by his own body forever um, mm. for those who are in him. He is the sustenance and provision that we need for life. Um, and I think the dailiness is just key. Um, you see that in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day, our daily bread. Um, and what a, what a picture to think about. We're praying for our physical daily provision of bread so that we don't starve. Um, and then to later hear Jesus say, I'm the bread. Mm -hmm. I'm the daily provision. Um, it is a powerful, powerful, all-encompassing idea that shapes our whole life. And, and, if, and if we can't, here's one thing I just want to really emphasize, is that if we can't make the connection between bread, Jesus, and word of God, we're going to fall short, definitely, of, of receiving him as our sustenance. Because Jesus is the bread, and he's also the word. He is the mm. word. And so God's written word has to play just an integral role in our understanding of Jesus as the bread. Because what does it look like right now for me to eat the bread? Well, we can look at communion, of course. Of course, communion. Jesus breaks bread and says, this is my body broken for you. But also, Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there is a real connection between um, spiritual sustenance from God's word as the food that we eat each day, that this Bible that I have sitting on my chair here with me is the sustenance that I will daily eat. I'm not taking communion every day. I have to eat this word every day um, and Jesus as the word and the bread. So I just think you've got to, to make that connection um, as well as that is the thing that will sustain you. Yeah, one of the things that just strikes me as as you're talking there is just there's a certain mundaneness about bread in our lives. I mean, obviously, uh, you are a skilled uh, bread maker, and so some of the breads that you make that you, you give some recipes for actually in this book look incredible. They do not look mundane. <laughs> but there is a certain sense in which bread generally is, is a pretty obvious, basic thing that we've... Uh, uh, we've all had uh, and maybe have on a very regular basis. And do you think there's something to that as well, that uh, not just is it common in all cultures across time, but it's even very mundane, and that actually might also be reflected in viewing God's Word as our bread, that there's, you know, it's, a, it's something that should characterize our lives on a daily basis to some extent, and it's just sort of always going to be there. 
Yeah, you saying that makes me think of that quote by Chesterton that talks about God as one who isn't bored with repetition the way we are. Hmm. Um, that he hasn't grown up. I'm putting that in scare quotes. He hasn't become that kind of adult who is so bored by repetition. But it's more like the way God says that we must enter the kingdom as a child. And a child delights in things being repeated. Their mm. thing is, do it again, do it again. Yeah, um, there are yeah. books that I have read to my son so that I have every word memorized and these are not short books. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's just like, wow. He every parent's nodding their head it. right now. Yes. There's a repetition that children love that adults get sick of. Um, and I think, just as God said, only children can enter the kingdom. He has not, like so many adults, grown bored with his repetition. Mm. If he had, the sun would not be rising again tomorrow. If he had all these things that we take for granted every day in creation that he does again and again and again, he would have gotten bored of long ago. He is not like us that way. And so that's one of the examples that I, that I give is just when you make a loaf of bread, the most excited people about that bread are the children. And they are not excited in the way adults are. They're excited in the way that they shove their mouths full of it. They're stuffing mm. it in. They're loving it. They are excited to eat it. They don't even necessarily have to say thank you for you to fully understand that they appreciate this bread <laughs> because they're asking for more. And it's not dutiful and it's not forced and it's none of those things. It's just pure delight. It is pure uh. delight. And that is the kind of thing that God is working in us. It's a reverse aging so that we can grow to be like children so that as we're eating the bread of life, Jesus, we are receiving him with the same delight that a child receives of a hot loaf of bread fresh out of the oven when mom says, yes, put the honey on it. Go ahead and dig in, even though it's not cooled down. It's that kind of delight that he's working in us so that we can receive bread like that. Not like an adult who's bored, tired, sick of it, doesn't really care, been there, done that. All those things that characterize the worst kind of adulthood. That's not who he's growing us to be. He's growing us to be yeah. children. Yeah, yeah. Maybe as a last question, uh, as you think about uh, making bread, uh, I'm wondering if you've uh, got anything that you're working on right now or you're planning to do in the near future. Uh, but, but has your study of the Bible and of this theme of bread throughout Scripture uh, culminating in Jesus, the bread of life, does that kind of come to mind as you make bread these days? And does that... Does that just kind of color the experience all the more? All the time, yes. And I think that's so much of what becoming like a child does for us is we become awake to the world and to the meaning God's woven into it. And so it's a great tool also to teach the people around you. It's Making bread is a great way of inviting people, even in a way that is fairly non-threatening because people want to learn how to make bread. <laughs> a lot of people want to learn how to make bread. And if, I mean, what a tool for evangelism, not in kind of some weird way. I just mean in a very organic, real way. Like, hey, did you know that Jesus says I'm the bread? Did you know that 
This has been around since the beginning. Did you know that God is the one who provides for us, that he has given himself as the bread for our whole life for forever? I mean, there are so many ways mm. of being able to share with your family, with your kids. What a lesson to get to teach kids. But then with with other people, with, with people who just really want to know how to make sourdough or who just yeah. really want to know how to make a loaf of bread that's easy. Um, it is a way to share Christ. And what a... What a missed opportunity to teach someone how to make bread and never mention Jesus. You know, <laughs> yeah. he is the bread. You know, let's not miss it, friends. Let's, let's make sure we're teaching the way he taught our, our sisters in Christ or people who may future be sisters in Christ. Teach them the way he taught by taking the physical thing in front of you and explaining what it really means for forever. Well, Abigail, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us about, uh, yeah, this really wonderful picture in Scripture and, uh, and your experience of bread making. We appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. That was Abigail Dodds on what the art of bread making can teach us about Jesus, the bread of life. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, Bread of Life, Savoring the All-Satisfying Goodness of Jesus Through the Art of Bread Making from Crossway. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.